I fancied that I wanted to be a concert pianist. That got a few chuckles in the ghetto when everybody was listening to the blues, you know. Between the ages of 9 and 14, the saxophonist and Philadelphia native Benny Golson studied the piano, tickling the ivories at recitals and tea parties for his mother and her friends, until one day he caught a show at the famed Earl Theatre, and his musical world turned upside down. I'm David Gorin, and this is Jazz Stories from Jazz at Lincoln Center. On this edition, We'll hear an excerpt from a 2001 interview with the jazz writer Ira Gittler and Benny Gulson, covering his early days in Philly and Washington, D.C., and performances with Tad Dameron and Dizzy Gillespie. I heard Arnett Cobb play Flying Home at the Earl Theater, and at that moment, the piano started to fade. And eventually, I got a saxophone, you know, and my mother was able to get me a new one, she bought it down at Wurlitz's, you know, where you pay a dollar down and a dollar a week forever. And she brought it home, and uh, I took it around to a friend named Tony, and he showed me how to put it together, and he played something along with a Duke Ellington recording, and I couldn't play a note. But that's how it began. Were you interested in jazz uh, between age nine of the piano and 14? Not really. You know, this is what I'm talking about. Beethoven and Brahms, I love those things, and Liszt. And uh, everybody was saying, <coughs> because uh, I was talking about the classics. But when I heard Arnett Cobb play, and I'd never seen a live band, the lights dancing on those golden instruments, and the sounds coming out through the speaker system, and the reaction of the people, I couldn't believe it. And I wanted to be a part of that. And that's how it all happened. I went home nights after I'd do my homework. I'd listen to the radio and wait for solos. And we didn't have solos like you have here, you know, a chorus or two. You'd hear four bars here, eight bars there. And I didn't even know whether it was an alto or tenor, but I knew it was a saxophone. And when my mother said, well, you want to play a saxophone, what kind do you want to play? I said, uh, the kind that's got the curve in the neck. I didn't even know it was a tenor saxophone. It just looked good. <laughs> Were you buying any records then? Oh, no, no, no. The only records we had were the old 78s that uh, we were living with my aunt and uncle, Uncle Dewey had. And they were always the blues kind of things, you know. Uh, Lonnie Johnson and uh, Ida James and Big Bill Boonsy. And I was saying, why did they listen to that horrible music? <laughs> <laughs> now, as you continued to play the saxophone, I imagine you started studying with someone. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right down there where she bought the horn at Word, it's about $15, and you got 10 lessons, and they put the full amount on the card, and each time you went, they deduct. And I had a teacher named Raymond Ziegler, and I was fortunate because Ray used to be the saxophone player with a band called Charlie Barnett. Swing and sweat with Charlie Barnett. <laughs> His claim to fame was Cherokee. During that time, he really taught me everything that I knew, how to read, how to transpose, how to play the different time signatures, how to be conscious of the sound of the instrument, to optimize it when you play, to listen to myself rather than just to play aimlessly. Did you start to play with other musicians and have little jam sessions? Oh, absolutely. I'd have to call them 
am sessions because we weren't really jamming too much. None of us really knew too much. And it started with uh, oh, Ray Bryant was the piano player. I was, he was 14, I was 16. Jimmy Heath was there, he was a little earlier. Jimmy was ahead of us a little bit. And then a new fellow came to town and a fellow brought him over. He says, this is a new guy that moved into the projects and he plays just like Johnny Hodges because he was playing alto then. And then when you heard the word Johnny Hodges, it's like, what? Bring him by the house. So he brought him by the house after school that next day. And I opened the door, and, and Howard, the, the alto player, he was standing up on the top step. And this country-looking guy was standing down on the sidewalk with his horn in his hand, biting his thumb like this. So I said, well, come in. And Howard came in and sat down on the couch. And this country-looking guy was just standing there in the door, like waiting for me to tell him what to do. So I, I said, play something. You know, what did I know? And he took his horn out and started playing on the side inside the street. And it was just like Johnny Hodges. Well, my mother was upstairs. She had never heard anything sound quite that good for what the rest of the kids were doing over there. So she hollered downstairs, who is that? I said, oh, a new fellow I just met named John Coltrane. <laughs> and John was always there for these jam sessions. We even joined the same band, Jimmy Johnson and his Ambassadors of Swing. And uh, we got put out of that band. We weren't, our plan wasn't really up to par, and you know, they were moving on ahead of us. But we came along eventually. As you uh, progressed through high school, who were some of the other musicians that you met in Philly? Because it was a rich territory for musicians, just as uh, most of the major cities were in those days. Oh, yeah. Jimmy Heath was one of them. And a fellow that I wanted to play with when I heard him play those drums named Philly Joe. And Red Garland was there, but they were a little ahead of, of me, you know. Jimmy could have probably played with him. John, not during that time. But as, as we went on in time, yes, Phil and I were in the same group, you know, because I was beginning to learn, I guess. But when I first got that horn, I got it in the summertime, in August. And, uh, of course, I'd play in the living room. That's where the record player was. And when I started to play, the neighbors, oh. Man, I heard later they would say, oh, my God, that Golson kid, there he goes again. <laughs> but I got a little better, you know, and then they start requesting songs, so I knew I must have been coming along pretty good. <laughs> but uh, that's where we did it. John and I used to spend a lot of time in that living room, and that's where we had our jam sessions. Everything took place in that living room, and then we started to go out to other people's homes, Jimmy Heath's house, we'd have jam sessions. We'd have the whole band down there, move the furniture back in Johnny Cole's house, wherever we could find a place to play. Now, you said Arnott Cobb was your first inspiration. Oh, definitely. But I remember in the 40s, Philadelphia, yeah, probably a lot of other places too, but a lot of tenor players from Philadelphia oh, yes. were enamored of Dexter Gordon's playing. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I remember the first time I heard him. Uh, I liked Arnett Cobb at first. Then I heard Coleman Hawkins. Then I heard Ben Webster. And then I heard Don Bias. And I fell to my knees then, you know, I wanted to genuflect a little bit. <laughs> but then I heard Charlie Parker moving along. And then I heard a new tune. I'd never heard a tune. It was so unusual. With a strange title, Blue and Boogie. And they played this interlude, the first time I heard it. And this tenor player came Dexter Gordon. Oh man, I couldn't believe anything sounded that good. It was so hip, so modern. And right away I busied myself 
trying to sound like Dexter Gordon. I'd been trying to sound like everybody else, but it was time for a switch. <laughs> of course, John Coltrane picked up on that, oh, he that was very like that uh, aspect you were singing. That's right, uh, absolutely. That throaty upper register uh, That's right. playing. He was playing like that, too, because by then he had switched from alto to tenor. Oh, yeah, we were all trying to get that thing together. Now, you went uh, attended Howard University from, what, 1946? Uh, I went there in 47, yeah. 47. What were you studying there? Well, they were preparing me to be a music teacher, music education. My mother would say to me, well, I know you want to be a musician, and uh, you've promised me that you would not take any dope, but I want you to do more than that. I want you to get an education, and she said, just in case, just in case I fail, I guess that's what she was talking about. And so I went, you know, and I went through the usual things, psychology one and music education and uh Things like that. Not much music, though. Not much music. And I wanted to compose, but the things they were doing were not the things that really I wanted to do. And I guess I really wanted to break the rules without knowing really too much about the rules themselves. And so I remember one day I went into class, and I came with my assignment. And there were only about 10 of us that uh, comprised the class. Every morning she'd take the assignment and put it up on the piano and play it. Ah, Mrs. Jones, very nice. I like your deceptive cadence at the end. Oh, Mr. Conrad, oh, this is nice. I like the Neapolitan six you used there. <laughs> and she got to mine, and I saw her red pencil go, chum, chum. <laughs> and she played another chord, and her red pencil said, chum, chum. She was like Zara, and she was cutting <laughs> me with the sword, and the blood was running down the paper, and finally she stopped in disgust and frustration and said, Mr. Golson, what have you done? And I knew I'd broken every rule. And I was so irritated and indignant, I just wanted to be obnoxious. I stood up and put my hands in my pocket and swayed from side to side and threw my head back and said, that's the way I heard it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's strange, some of the things that I did then, I did later in life, and they were accepted. On Killer Joe, I didn't come out of that song in the usual way. I came out another way that they said, wasn't permissible. And I questioned those who made the rules. I said, well, let's make some new rules. You, know? well, you were ahead of your time, like so many others. Well, maybe. <laughs> what was your first uh, name band? When did you go on the road? <clears throat> A big name, big name. Bull Moose Jackson and his Buffalo Bearcats. <laughs> Bull Moose was out of Cleveland. So was Tad Dameron. And they used to go to school together. His name was actually Ben Jackson. And uh, Moose needed a piano player. This is just before I joined him. And so he saw Tad one day, and he said, well, Tad, look, if you're not working, you can just make a few gigs with me until you do what you want to do. So when I joined the band, Tad was the piano player. Now, he was my hero. Our delight with Fats Navarre and all those things, the squirrel. Tad, down on piano, and this, I couldn't believe it. I tell you, I clean his mind out. And he was so loving. I mean, he just told me everything he knew. I got more experience there, too. And uh, I got to a point where when I would write some things for the band, uh, Bull Moose was a kind of a guy, even though his reputation was made by singing certain kinds of popular songs, uh, he liked I love to, you, yes I do. I love you, yes I do. We played that tune. I, can, I, can, <laughs> I think I can still play that tune. He would let us do arrangements. Mm. You know, I wrote a tune called Shades of Dameron, and Tad came to me one night and said, somebody in the audience said to me, oh, I love that arrangement you did, Tad. He said, it was an arrangement you did. What a drag. But it was, he, was, oh, he was really so proud that I had 
you know, was able to imitate him and wanted to imitate him, it was really a compliment he was giving me. Well, what a stroke of luck to be able to be in a band with, oh, with your mentor. Absolutely. I learned so much from him. Well, after Bull Moose Jackson, <laughs> you actually then joined Tad Dameron's band. Joined Tad Dameron, which is where I met Clifford Brown because he was the trumpet player. Tad had heard about him, and he got him to uh, join the group. It was just nine of us. This I mean, was in Atlantic City. Atlantic City. It was like a slave kind of a job because it was seven days a week, and we played three shows a night. And in between the shows, we had to play dance music, not confirmation or Cherokee, dance music. And we were all doing that, you know, waiting for a four-bar solo here or whatever. And on Saturdays, going into Sunday morning, there was the breakfast show that we had to play, like at 3 o'clock, and you got out about 7 in the morning. Mm. And we got all of $100 a week. But this was a long time ago. <laughs> but uh, we did it. I don't know why we did it, but while we were there, somebody from Prestige talked to Tad, and they knew Clifford was in the band, and we did a recording for Prestige called Dameronia. Of course, Benny, as I said at the outset, has written so many songs that have become jazz standards. There's Whisper Not, there's uh, uh, Along Came Betty, Are You Real, there's Killer Joe, there's, uh, <laughs> my God, they go on and on, Five Spot After Dark, Stable Mates, uh, and of course, Blues March. Mm. Perhaps one that's been recorded more than any of the others, and I think I looked it up on the internet the other day, not that the internet is always accurate, but I think they had something like 50 or 60 recordings of I Remember Clifford. Yes, something like that, yeah. Sometimes I hear recordings that I've never heard before, you know, of it by people. I'm surprised. And of course, I Remember Clifford was written after the tragic accident on the Pennsylvania Turnpike where Clifford Brown and Richie Powell and Richie's wife lost their lives. Like everyone else in the jazz world, um, and especially because you knew him so well, yeah. uh, you must have been devastated. Everybody was. We never called him Clifford during those days. Everybody lovingly called him Brownie. Brownie. And so were you moved to write, write it shortly after you heard about it? or? Yes. When we heard about it, we were playing the Apollo Theater in New York City. And about two weeks later, we found ourselves in Hollywood playing the club there. We had a two-week engagement, and it was really well, on Now, my... what band were you with? Then? Oh, I'm sorry, Dizzy Gillespie's, uh, okay. the, the, the big band, yeah. yeah. But I decided I would try to write a song that would be reminiscent of Clifford. And during those days, I could write a song in one day, you know, just half hour or so. It might not have been that great, though. But this tune, because of what he meant to me as a friend and fellow musician, and what I wanted the song to be, consequentially, it took me almost a whole two weeks to do it. And once I did it, I wasn't sure what I had. So Dizzy came in early one night, and I'd come with my uniform that afternoon, knowing that I wouldn't be going back to the hotel. So since he was there, I decided to ask him what he thought about it. Chairs were still up on the tables. They hadn't really prepared. Somehow he came early. And so I asked him, did he have a moment to listen? So I wanted him to hear something. And uh, he said, okay. He came over and sat down at the table, and I started to play this tune. 
And he said, hmm. And then he started to take his trumpet out of the case. And I thought to myself, the man doesn't even know the tune, and he's going to try to play it. But he fooled me. He took out his kerosene, used to play to oil his vowels, and he took the vowels out, and he started pouring kerosene on the vowels. Then he poured it in the horn, and he held the horn up like that, and then he started blowing to clean out the horn. And the kerosene got on me, and it got on the piano and on the floor, and I said, oh, man, you know, it doesn't mean anything. I haven't got anything here. But when I finished it, he stopped. He says, what are you going to call that? And I said, Maybe he's interested. So I told him I was thinking about calling, and I remember Clifford and, you know, how I felt about Clifford and all of us really how we felt about him. And he said, that's beautiful. He said to me, I have a date coming up for Norman Grant's in about a month. Can I record this song? Now, he, Dizzy Gillespie's asking me, I could have come here to New York, stood in Times Square buck naked, and people would have walked by me and not known who I was. That's how obscure I was. I used to have his picture at the foot of my bed on the wall. I looked at him every day and every night and had dreams about the future. This man had come down over the wall, approached me and asked me could he record I Remember Clifford. But musicians are supposed to be cool. I couldn't reveal what was happening inside. <laughs> I mean, inside I was going crazy. I was bungee jumping and playing chicken and Russian roulette. And I simply said to him, very cool, yeah. <laughs> I suppose to be cool. And, and he, he did record it. But uh, Lee Morgan was in the band, and Blue Note had just locked into him. And his first date was coming up in two weeks. And I always say, somehow he heard it. I guess I played it for him. And he wanted to record it. So Lee recorded it first. Dizzy recorded it second. And Donald Byrd, who was with Columbia Records, was the third one to record it. And then I lost track. I, had, I wrote the tune thinking that it would be a trumpet tune. But lo and behold, while I was in Japan, I heard a saxophone version by Sonny Rollins. And then I heard a version by Oscar Peterson. And then George Sherring. And then other people. And then I said, wow. <laughs> That was jazz saxophonist and composer Benny Golson in conversation with the jazz writer Ira Gittler, recorded in February 2001. Check out the music of Benny Golson at our Jazz and Lincoln Center radio program archive, www.jalc.org jazzcast. You can find all of our jazz stories at jalc.org and on iTunes. Jazz Stories is produced at Murray Street by myself, David Gorin, with Alexa Lim and Stephen Rath. Support comes from Jazz at Lincoln Center. Consider becoming a member and experiencing America's great jazz art at Rose Hall, our house of swing. You'll find schedules and more at jalc.org. <laughs>